This is Conversation 7, which propels us into the epicenter of Chicago's first ward. Enter John Diarco Sr. and Pat Marcy. Both were hitmen for Al Capone. When Bob meets them, they are essentially running the state of Illinois from inside the first ward. Diarco Sr. wants Bob to show his son the legal ropes, and once ensconced inside their world, Pat Marcy appears to have Bob try the Harry Alleman murder trial. Alleman is a mob hitman who's facing certain conviction on a murder charge, and Marcy needs the case fixed. It's important to know this case is a legal landmark. I won't spoil why, but it's staggering what happens here. And once again, Bob is in the middle of the action, orchestrating and outmaneuvering everyone. Enjoy the wave of Chicago corruption that's about to wash over you. Bob, how did you meet John DiArco, and how did he become your business partner? We both went to Loyola. I was a policeman at the time, but nobody there knew it. I'm working, at that time, I'm working midnights. I'm going to school uh, daytime at Loyola. I'm usually very tired because I'm, I'm working full-time. You know, I'm going to school full-time, and a lot of times I started making arrests, and I'd wind up, if I had to go to court, and I didn't have a car, I spent a lot of time on transportation. So I was, I was always dead tired in the morning. I come walking in there. There was one section on the street there, just outside. You have all these fancy cars parked, these ultra expensive sports cars and whatever. And as you walk in the door, there'd be about maybe I'd say about twenty, twenty-five of these, mostly Italians. You know, it turned out these were mobsters' kids, and they had all kinds of all kinds of girls always around them. And uh, as I come walking in the door. There were a bunch of them, including a couple of girls, blocking, blocking the way. And normally when you come in, you got to excuse yourself the best. Excuse me, excuse me, because they're blocking the whole area there. And this particular day when I come in, I wasn't in the mood to excuse anybody. And, and I gave a couple of the girls a shove and pushed them into the other group and prancing over to my table. And when you, when you say out. shove, do you mean a gentle nudge? With your hip, this was no nudge. I was not. I, I, you know, I had nudged for for weeks and weeks. And this particular time, I was sick and tired of it because, like I say, they they were blocking the whole area again. And I shoved them, and they bounced off some other people, and you know, and a whole bunch of them went down. Three or four of them come walking over. You know, you want to fight? We got somebody here that you know wants to fight with you. Pardon me. A fight is arranged for the next morning. So who who do they arrange to fight me? I guess the who they thought was their toughest was uh, John Diarco, Johnny Jr. I had no idea who he even was. I'd never seen the person that I know of before that. And so we go over there and I take off my jacket and the fight didn't last more than about, I'd say, three or four minutes. I labeled him about a half a dozen times and, and down he goes. And before he can get up, the police show up because there were about maybe 40, 50 people standing out there. And they thought there was some kind of a riot going on, I guess. You know, I show them my button and, uh, you know, yeah, there was, you know, I show them I'm a policeman or whatever. And obviously all these people around there were like, you know, in a state of shock. Anyhow, the, the fight is over. We go back. The next day, it's around noontime. I'm there again at the table with Mike and Turk. And in come two of these big, you know, muscle bound guys. It turned, I found out later, I mean, I, knew, I became friends with these two guys later. Uh, these were two policemen, Baki Pasoli and Muggsy. 
They come up there and they said, you know, who's Bob Cooley? I am. We heard a couple of you guys beat up Johnny Jr. Pardon me? I guess because he wound up, you know, having some bruises and, and whatever when he got home and told him a couple of guys beat him up or something. I don't know what he told them. But anyhow, I said, no, it was a fight. And I explained it was an arranged fight. But I also showed him I was a policeman. With that, they left. I think it's important at this moment to talk about who John Jr.'s father is. John John Giarco Sr., I think he was still the first ward alderman and the first ward committeeman. He was originally, he was a gunman with the Al Capone mob. Al Capone is the one who started the first ward democratic organization. John DiArco basically ran first ward democratic organization. They had taken over the entire, all the elections. They had taken over the entire city of Chicago and the state. Everybody thought he was the one who ran everything. The one who ran everything was Pat Marcy, who was also a gunman with the original Al Capone mob. And uh, they had taken over all the elections. Every every election, they had about 25 phones put up in the, uh, in the first ward office. And everybody called in all the election results to them. And if they didn't like it, Pat would send somebody out. I mean, Pat Marcy would send somebody out to uh, would send somebody out and, and the votes would be changed. Let's speak about that partnership with Johnny. Do you want to go back to this moment when you walk in, you've been so fed up with these girls, people blocking this entryway or walkway pathway, you oh, shove yeah. these kids and then you have this arranged fight. And then the next day, these two intimidating police officers come to confront you. The very next time I see Johnny, I'm in law school at the time. And uh, when I finish up in law school, I would usually go down to Rush Street. I'd go down to Division Street, and I'd have a few drinks. And, and I started work at 11, but it's about maybe 10 o'clock or so, 10, 15. I would just drive from, you know, from the bars that I was in and drive out to the uh, to the station and uh, change there and, you know, and, and go to work. I'm in the car, and I had, a, I had a GTO at the time. I had my blue GTO. I'm driving over there on the inner drive. And a car, <laughs> and and it looks like an unmarked car pulls me over. He's got like a, a light inside the car, you know, flashing, a blue light flashing as our undercover cars. There, some kid, kid, I say kids, probably in his early 20s, comes walking up and flashes a badge and says, let me see your driver's license. And I, I reach in my pocket and I pull out my button. And, you know, I had, I used to have my badge with my picture thing connected to it and I show it to him. And when I do, he says, that's okay or whatever. Something didn't register right with him. I don't know why I get out of the car. And as I get out of the car and walk back towards his, who's sitting in the passenger seat, but Johnny, Johnny Diarco, who's a Senator at the time. <laughs> and what the fuck are you doing? Oh, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sorry. He said, you know, we're just fucking around. And he says, listen, Bob, he said, you know, I'm having a big party this Saturday. Staying over at my dad's house over here. His dad had an apartment up there in Lakeshore Drive. And he said, I'm having a big, I'm having a big party. You know, why don't you come and whatever. And he gave me, he gave me his number and I wound up going to the party and never saw him for two, three years after that. You're running around with a group of mobsters whose activity is centered around your gambling and the western suburbs. But are you aware of the criminal control of the First Ward? Are Diarco and Marcy mobsters that you have knowledge of? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly by this time, 
I'm running around with a bunch of the uh, the mom pitmen, and a lot of them took a liking to me. And initially, I I started having dinners over at Mama DeLuca's and inviting different groups of people. And it would be mainly, you know, these guys that were sending me a lot of business and bringing me a lot of business with gambling, mainly with gambling. In fact, they would have people come in from out of town on occasion. Uh, they would bring in some of the guys, some of the mobsters that you know were running gambling operations in Milwaukee, and also, and I remember in Cleveland and in Detroit. Another occasion too, when they brought a couple of guys in that were doing business in the Quad Cities up there in the uh, Minneapolis area, and these people were uh, interconnected with the uh, with the First Ward, you know, operation. The top mob bosses, I'd see them over there at Counselors Row, and. Uh, meeting with uh, with Pat Marcy and with and with Fred Rohde, but mainly with Pat Marcy. So I knew exactly. I knew there was a connection between the mob. And I'd also been reading all these stories in the paper. They constantly wrote the fact that Johnny DiArco, uh Sr., you know, had been with Al Capone's mob and Pat Marcy, too. But they constantly wrote in the paper that these were mobsters that had taken over the complete control of the first ward. So I knew they were powerful, but I had no idea how powerful until I, until I made my connection. And the way the connection was made, as I mentioned before, I had just finished a trial before Judge Cotillo, and I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. And apparently Judge Cotillo was a jury trial, and Judge Cotillo told Johnny Sr., about me. Now, he had probably seen me many times there in counselors, but I had never spoken to him because I was in there every single day. Johnny stops me and, and asked me if, you know, and asked me if I could train his, his son how to try a case. He said he's been a lawyer for a couple of years. And, and again, I hear you're a fantastic lawyer. And, and the moment he told me that, my thought was, my God, these are, these are the most powerful people in the city. There's so much I can do if I do get connected with them. You know John Sr., John DiArco Sr., tangentially in that you're not friends with him. You know who he is by reputation, and you've seen him in counselors. So when he approaches you and offers up this opportunity, it's flattering, obviously. But you also realize this is a a massive opportunity for bigger things. Oh, absolutely. And and, uh, and I knew that they – I knew a lot about them uh, because, you know, I represented a lot of people. You know, a lot of these mobsters, and I ran around with a lot of them, and they all talked about, you know, the first ward, the first ward, and we have to, they do this and they do that. A lot of them had city jobs, and they got all their jobs through the first ward. A lot of these people had had no show, had no show jobs. A lot of these people were sheriffs and everything else because, uh, you know, they got all that done through the first ward. I mean, I knew that was happening, but I had no idea, again, you know, how how it ran or whatever. What I felt was uh, just even by being seen with Johnny Jr., he's a senator, the most powerful senator down there in Springfield. I just knew that, you know, it only opened up some unbelievable doors for me, and that's uh, when I jumped right into it. There's no conflict of interest for a sitting state senator to also have a law firm. It's absolutely common. You know, there's dozens and dozens of them do. Same as the aldermen. Aldermen have, and a lot of them are, if they are lawyers, they have law offices in their, in the, uh, in the ward. Just about every ward has a lawyer 
if the committeeman or if the uh, alderman isn't a lawyer himself, they've got a lawyer working right out of their office because it brings in a lot of business. And you, you saw, too, with Eddie Burke and the others, they also collect thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars by these deals where you hire them to get your taxes reduced. That's another, another whole business all in itself. Both Eddie and Madigan, that's what they were eventually indicted for. We've got some other very interesting laws in Illinois. They don't have any place else. And and they're basically because, you know, because the mob, which is the first ward, uh, orchestrated it in terms of, you know, being able to, for no reason whatsoever, uh, you know, indicate you don't want to judge and he's gone. I don't know of any other state where you can do that. You have to have a valid reason for, re- you know, removing a judge from a case. In Illinois, you don't. When they tried to, when they tried to reverse that, uh, Johnny put a stop to it years ago. They were talking about how, you know, it could lead to corruption and they wanted to, they wanted to change that. And Johnny put a stop to it. Talk about counselors because it's such an important environment. You've mentioned it in the past in detail. I think it's such a fascinating, uh, you know, it's almost like out of a Scorsese movie, if you will. Um, talk about what counselors was and what it meant and what went on there. And physically, where was it? Counselors, well, it was at 100 North LaSalle. It's right across the street from City Hall. 100 North South, directly across the street. And you walk in there, you walk in, and it's it's adjacent to the 100 North LaSalle building. Uh, when I say it's, it might have had a different address, but it's connected to that building. In fact, if you walk into Counselor's Row from the side door, it's right, there's a parking lot there. And right alongside the parking lot, there was a door leading into Counselor's. You walk in there, directly in front of you, you've got the cash register. And behind that, you've got a bunch of seats. And then, then the far in, in the far wall back there is where they have an open, an open area, you know, a restaurant where you can see the cooks running around and they're doing what they're doing. If you walk in there and you turn to the left in the far, far corner on the left hand, on the left hand side, uh, you've got a table, a round table that seats about eight people. And you've got a telephone there. And, and in the wall on both sides of it, you've got pictures of the mayors and and uh, a president or two and whatever. You had a bunch of old, old pictures. And then right alongside of that, you've got the door that opens up and leads you into the council, into the 100 North LaSalle office section, uh, you know, with a big open area for the people coming in through the, the doors there leading into that building were those uh, doors that, you know, swing around, you know, the ones you walk in and you push them and you come in that way. Then you've got, and then there you've got the elevators going upstairs to, to all the offices. And at the very end of it, you've got a small little room. I called it a janitor's closet. And there you have stairs to the left as you walk in leading up to the commodity exchange. They had a big commodity exchange up on the second floor. Everybody, in fact, explaining how impressive a place it was. Alderman Rohde came in there every morning around 7.30. And uh, and that's where every day you had all the personnel from City Hall, the you know, important personnel coming in, and all kinds of other you know political people coming in. The aldermen coming in there. You had judges and Judge Comerford, who was the chief judge, was there every day for breakfast with, with the alderman. Comerford was the, the judge in charge of all the judges there in the uh, in the city courts. It was the powerhouse there. Initially on Thursdays, when I first started with them, that's where they would have dinner. Pat Marcy would have, and different, you know, different people come from out of town, politicians, Teamster officials, 
it, it was a powerhouse. And now upstairs, you've got the first ward office upstairs, directly upstairs from there. But uh, that's where, you know, that's where everybody would come. But again, Pat, Pat himself and Johnny too senior, when he was there, they would never talk at the table. If somebody came in, they they'd get up and walk and go either into the back of the restaurant, but more more than likely they'd walk into the lobby area there and and have their discussions. But what the first ward also had, you know, I don't think I've ever told anybody else about this. Nobody's ever asked. The first ward office connected to it. In the back of the office, there was a doorway leading into the Darko Marcy Insurance Agency. All those big buildings there in downtown, that's where they all got their insurance. And I'm, and I'm sure they got no special rates. Uh, huge, huge money. Big, big money for these guys. What they had, it was one, no, it was two floors down below. Uh, if, you, if you get off the elevator and you go to the right, they had one in the corner, they had an office and there was one directly straight across and, and back in the other side, there was another office. There was one office that had no markings in it. The windows there painted black. It looked like it was a, you know, a vacant office. That's where the mob guys and Pat did a lot of his business with people uh, and they would have it swept every day. So wait, every just, day, just, some- just for geography purposes, counselors rose on the first floor on the second floor is the first ward offices behind that. No, no, no. On the 27th floor is the first ward offices. Yes. And then this insurance agency that they run is on the 27th floor as well, or just somewhere in that building. No, it's connected. If you walk into the first ward office and you, and you, and what they had there too, was you couldn't get in without Danny or whoever was working the door, opening the buzzing, the door open. It, it, they, you could only sit about maybe five or six people in the outer office. You come back in and directly in front of it, you got a small little office. That was the one that Pat Marcy, you know, said was his. And then there's a big, big office uh, alongside of that. that was senior's office. If you come out of senior's office and you keep going to the left, there's a door that leads to, you know, to the offices next door. And it was like a double office where they had like a whole portion of the floor, big, big insurance agency, because it was called Darko. Uh, it was a Darko Marcy or something. It was Darko or Darcy or Darcy or something like that. But it was, it was owned by Pat Marcy and John Diarco was their in the office, but they had the business from all those huge buildings downtown. Uh, at that time, the first war was all the office buildings there in downtown going all the way up to Chinatown. Uh, that was all, that was all theirs. Two floors below them, there's about, on each floor, there were about maybe six or seven uh, offices on each floor. But there was a, a building, I mean, there was a room that was all, you'd think it was a vacant office because the windows were all painted black and there was nothing on the door. Nothing in, indicating that, you know, looked like it was an, an empty, vacant office. Uh, that, that's where they would meet with different mobsters and different teamsters. When, when, they were, when they were passing out contracts, in fact, Eddie was there a lot. What they would do was what they you're, would you, just You're do. saying Eddie Burke was there. I think it's important to pause here for a second and talk about Ed Burke. Ed Burke is a name that people in Chicago know for decades. And Bob talks about him and his wife a lot 
and there's frustration there. Bob felt that Ed Burke was going to be taken down and indicted in the 80s when Bob had turned to the government and divulged what he knew. And Ed Burke was a a large part of the corruption in Chicago or alleged corruption. But as I talk to you today, I'm going to read an article from November of this year uh, from WBEZ. Let me read you the headline. With his corruption trial looming, Chicago Alderman Ed Burke does not seek re-election. Burke is scheduled to stand trial November 2023 for allegedly using his clout at City Hall to gain business for his private law practice. Indicted Chicago Alderman Ed Burke will not run for re-election, ending the reign of City Hall's longest-serving alderman as a federal corruption trial looms. Burke did not file a petition by Monday's 5 p.m. deadline. He offered no immediate comment about his decision not to seek re-election. Burke was elected to represent the Southwest Side 14th Ward in 1969, succeeding his father. He's held on to that office for nearly 54 years, accumulating a vast amount of power over the decades. But that power at City Hall took a hit in 2019 after his offices were raided by the FBI, and he was later charged with racketeering, bribery, and attempted extortion for allegedly using his clout at City Hall to gain business for his private law practice, Clafter and Burke. He has pled not guilty. After years of delays, Burke is scheduled to stand trial in November 2023. As details of the Federal Probe Service, Burke relinquished the chairmanship of the Influential Finance Committee, the committee, a committee that can approve or block everything from police misconduct settlements to tax and vet incentives for private businesses. Despite his indictment and stepping down at Finance Chairman Burke sailed to re-election in 2019, he beat back two challengers and earned 54% of the vote. Uh, but in the past four years, court documents have revealed more details behind his federal indictment. Wiretap calls and conversations paint a picture of Burke's alleged abuse, which include trying to force the owners of a Burger King to hire his law firm to do property tax appeals and allegedly refusing to help developers of the old main post office building until his firm was hired. Quote, the cash register has not rung yet, unquote, Burke allegedly told then Alderman Danny Solis, who was working with the feds and secretly recording Burke about the latter instance. Burke's work as a private attorney has long been intersected with his taxpayer-funded jobs as an alderman. It goes on and on and on, and I'll stop reading. But I, I wanted to pause here, and this is the first time I've done it in these conversations, just to highlight in real time who Ed Burke is and now what he's up against. And that Bob Cooley in the 70s was interacting with him and his wife, who will start to come into these conversations, and she herself just resigned as the Supreme Court Justice of, of Illinois. But Ed Burke continued on for decades, and the feds finally caught up to him. He still deserves his day in court, of course, but it seems like they've got a monumental case against him. I just wanted to highlight that so we can understand in real time what's going on in Chicago and how some of these institutions and people masticize for decades. They're impossible to dislodge. So let's go back to the conversation. Yeah, what they had supposedly to make it legitimate for all these big contracts. We're talking about, you know, million dollar, half million dollar. They're supposed to be blind bids to keep it honest. 
for all these different major projects, you know, for multi-million dollar projects. <laughs> but that was beautiful. What they would do, they would have meetings and they would decide who's going to get the contract. <laughs> uh, they would look at the bids and they would tell them how much the one person bid. They would tell which one to be the lowest bid. All the others have, you know, the legitimate guys coming in, the the legitimate companies coming in, putting in their bids. They would have whoever they decided this time is going to get this one. And when one gets it, he's going to give pieces of it off to half a dozen of the others that are interconnected with him. Johnny DeFranco's brother was one of the major contractors. But they they would decide who's going to get the bid, and he would submit a bid that's a little bit lower than the lowest bid. So he gets the bid. But every contract that they signed had something in there, but for unforeseen circumstances. This is what it will be, but for unforeseen circumstances. And every single time after they got the bid, there were hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes millions of unforeseen circumstances. Maybe it (laughs) rained an extra day. I mean, this is how, those were the unforeseen circumstances. They had everything so locked up, Neil. It was, it was comical. So this building, would you say, is without question the epicenter of what's going on in oh, Chicago and the oh, corruption? Oh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. Every election, I told you before, everybody came there to the first ward. Everybody. I mean, just about every single judge, every politician, uh, every, every head of every department, they all came there to pay tribute. And, uh, and they came into the office and, you know, it stood around. There'd be 40, 50 people. Every powerful person in the city came there because they were all under the, basically under their control. And what I made it a point to do, starting in Springfield, I became personal friends with a whole bunch of senators and a whole bunch of the others. And they wound up contacting me if their kids or whatever else got in trouble, they would contact me. What I told Pat we would do, we don't charge any of the ward people for any problems. I'll just charge them for a little bit for my time. You know, for a DUI or for, for other stuff, we don't charge them. Precinct captains or their families or whatever. I did the same thing out there in Lipinski's ward uh, because they will they will eventually bring more business to us. You know, not just criminal, but also civil where you can make a lot of money. But uh, it, it built up my own reputation in so many ways. And especially now, every single election. Now, they, they had two the in the sheriff's department the the one who was in charge of all the evictions and everything was uh bruno rody fred rody's brother was in charge of the of that section of the sheriff's department i told you uh the, the sheriff would actually be sitting out there at, at the racetrack with johnny defranzo let's go back to the business deal you crafted with john diarco senior and his son and the details of how you became business partners with them what what happened was I told Johnny that we would, you know, I told Johnny I'd work out something with Pat DeLeo. That's his son-in-law who was part of the Kugel DeLeo law firm. And I said, uh, you know, I'll work out something with him. And the deal I worked with Pat was that I would do all the criminal work. None of these criminals would go into their office. They'd they'd all come and, and I would handle all the work. And I'd put my business in with their business. And we'd split that 50-50. I'd get half and, uh, and their firm gets half. Uh, Pat kind of balked at that, but there's no way he could stop it. I'm, you know, I'm basically the whole system in terms of, you know, uh, what, what senior wants. He wants me to take Johnny with him. And so what I did too, the first thing, the first thing that happened when, when, when we became partners, uh, it was the very next Monday, 
when John says, I want to take you to Springfield and introduce you to some people uh, as my as my partner. With, with his thought was that they wanted me to be a lobbyist. He wanted me to maybe be a lobbyist, and it would be 50-50 on that. Uh, so that was his reason for taking me down there. I had a different idea in my mind. I had no interest in being a lobbyist, getting involved in something that, you know, that was so obvious you had to be playing games with a lot of different people. Uh, when we went to Springfield the first time, and we went into Johnny's office, and and there had to be 40, 50 people at all. Every, everybody that walked by would stop and, hi, Johnny, how are you? You know, uh, how's your father? Tell your dad I said hi. And Johnny would introduce me to him. This is my, uh, my law partner. Uh, he's a terrific lawyer. If you need a lawyer for anything in Chicago, uh, you know, even if you have problems up here, he can, you know, he can, he can do magical things is what he would tell these people. And I got to meet a lot of those people. Uh, over a short period of time, I started. I became friends, personal friends, and and I would invite them out to dinner with a lot of the a lot of the different senators and and some of the congressmen. Now, it's it, it was a very short time later, probably maybe less than a week after I after I'm partners with Johnny. I met the counselors' row table. Like I say, that was a table in the corner of the restaurant. Pat and and, and Johnny and Senior was there. And he said, you know, do you know, you know, Pat Marcy? And I said, yeah, I know him. I had seen him there many times. And I thought he was like the flunky. You know, I would see him sitting there at counselors and he, he, he was a real mean looking guy. Just a very, he's not a very friendly looking sort. And uh, I had never spoken a word to him. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I know who he is. And he said, he'd like to talk to you about something. And I said, uh, okay, sure. And, and he got on the phone. They've got their own phone there. And Pat was upstairs in the ward office and he calls him down. And, and uh, when Pat comes down, he comes by the table and he motions me to, you know, to follow him. And because there was a door, if you were in the lobby of the 100 North building, and that's where my office was upstairs. As you head out towards the uh, the front door, just to the left, before you get to the door, there's a, a swing door that opens right into Counselor's Row. It's you know it's a, it's not a regular door. It's not something that can be locked. It's just a door that opens and closes. It's like a partition or whatever. And and just to the right of you as you come in is where the first ward table is. And uh, as I say, Pat comes you know comes comes walking through there, motions me to follow him and. And we go out into the hall. He says, "Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. I hear your, I hear your partners now with with Junior and you know and yeah and, and again you know I you know I wanted to say hello. I hear you're a terrific lawyer and goes through all that BS. And then he says, you know I've got a case here. I've got a case that maybe you can handle. And when he said that, right away it registered. It, it was front page news. The Harry Alleman case. It was a mob hitman." that supposedly killed somebody on a mob hit because they wanted to take over the docks or some nonsense. He says to me, do you think you've got somebody that can handle it? And when he said that, I knew exactly what he meant. He meant somebody who can get the case, basically fix the case. What's interesting about that is the perception that Marcy has, which must come from John Sr., is that you're fixing cases. But in reality... You've never fixed cases. You're just a great attorney that knew how to get your clients off. So exactly. So when he says that, it's a little bit odd. No, not really, because Marco and, and some of the others, these guys thought I was fixing these jury trials. 
Uh, these were cases that nobody thought could be won. These people thought I was fixing murder. I was fixing the jury, which is not the case at all. But I'm sure a lot of these people knew me. I was I was very visible. I wasn't exactly like a you know a, a wallflower. Uh, I would uh, I used to park my car right there in front, you know, in the bus stop with my license plates RJC Robert J Cooley. Uh, you know, the people there all knew that I was running big, big card games upstairs. In fact, one of the people who used to come to the card game was uh, was Ray O'Malley, who was the head of the city at night. He was the commissioner that was in charge, you know, after like nine o'clock or something. He was in charge of the whole city. He used to be playing in the kind of... This guy was a lieutenant to Daly, the mayor, and in charge of the city? No, no, it, it was the police commissioner. Oh, I see. So it was the police commissioner who was in charge of the city during the night playing cards with you. Rosie, I represented a madame, Rosie Armando. And she was what I, she was the one, what I called a good, you know, a good, the good uh, madame. A Rosie Law, another one who was a rat, who had a lot of rat girls working for her and whatever. But Rosie... Rosie had an apartment, a, a two-bedroom apartment, and she always had, she she picked up these girls off the street that were, uh, a lot of them were into dope and whatever, but she basically let them stay there, and, and uh, you know, they wouldn't rob people or do stuff like that like some of Rosie's girls would do, so I became friends with her, and it got to the point where, where are you going to be tonight, you know, because I'd, I'd have dinners at all these different restaurants around, and sometimes at Mama Lucas and sometimes at other places, and uh, she would like to come and hang around and always have one or two of her girls with her. So I was a very visible character, you might say. I'm running around socially with a whole bunch of these different, you know, these different mobsters who were well-known to be hitmen. So it's but, an inevitability that your paths are going to cross they already have oh, yeah. crossed. You filled the need for John Sr. In, in multiple ways, one being that you were able to solidify his son's legal business, but also you were really great at doing what you did, being a defense attorney. So this was advantageous to John Sr. in many ways. What, was, what, what Johnny's purpose was, I'm sure, because, I mean, Johnny was like a, just a, a real strange individual. Uh, all he thought about was Johnny. Never did. In fact, when I found out earlier, uh, you know, when I found out earlier was Johnny was like a hippie when he was younger. And at one time he ran away when he was like, I guess, I guess when it was probably right around the time I had that fight with him back in college where he actually took off. And it turns out he went to the Hake, that Hake and Barry area. Hate Ashbury in San Francisco. Right. He, he wound up, apparently he wound up, you know, I found this out from Blackie Pasoli, you know, who was one of the guys who had come initially to beat me up, I guess, over at, you know, over at Loyola. Blackie told me that uh, him and him and Muggsy, in fact, were sent out there to drag him back because he wouldn't come back home. The father, you know, wanted his son to be, you know, to be, you know, a legitimate, you know, hardworking sort. But the, the purpose was for me to train this guy as, as a lawyer. Now, as we're partners, every day when he's in town, I would drive over. He lived at uh, was the 321 May, and I would drive over. He lived in like a, it looked like a small White House. He lived in a mansion over there in a very mediocre neighborhood. Uh, but he lived in a, in a huge, huge house that they had built for him. And I, I would pick him up, and we would, we would go to all the different courts. And everybody could see him when I talk about everybody, not just the sheriffs and all the rest of them, 
they all know who Johnny was. And here's yours truly, uh, with Johnny always a step or two behind and obviously running the show. And uh, Johnny would just be like basically moping along. I would take him to the different chambers and they all, the judges all knew who he was. And I'd introduce him and whatever. As I said, people realize that I'm connected with the first ward. Do uh, you have any reservations at all about getting into business with these guys and teaming up? Is there any, is there any part of you that's, you talked previously about running into the fire. You love the action. Was this another one of those moments where you're like, oh, I'm already in the action. Things are going great, but now I'm really going to level it up. Or was there just some, just a degree of this, this is not going to end well, or these are people I shouldn't be in business with? Or is it more, you're a defense attorney, so you understand you're doing a job. People have the right to, to hire an attorney to defend them if they're accused of something. Neil, I set my own rules. When, when I started, when I initially started getting the business from Marco, when I started getting, you know, the gambling business and the reason was because I was in there on my own, you know, winning every case I had, but I was also on a, on a personal basis with all the gambling policemen, with both the sergeants in charge, those two gambling units. I was personal friends with these guys. I'm out socially with them. I'm inviting them out for dinner all the time. They're coming over to, they're coming over to dinners over at Mama DeLuca's. And when these other gangsters come in and, you know, when they're there, they see me who's with the gambling, you know, with the gambling units. So they realize, you know, that you know, I, I have unbelievable connections there to start with. When one of their guys would get in trouble uh, and they're going to pick up the bill, they tell them what lawyer they're going to use. And when Marco gave me one of my first clients, it was a major burglary ring that was traveling around, you know, traveling not just in Illinois, but in a lot of times Indiana, up in Michigan, sometimes Wisconsin. When I got when I got one of those cases, and the second day after we're in court, I'm at the club to collect on some gambling cases from Marco. He said, "Now, if you find out who the informants are, and we would we would find out, we get the documents and all." And he said, "You know, now we want to know who those people are." And I just said, "No, Mark, no, I don't do that." And he said, "Well, the other lawyers are." I said, I don't give, I don't care. I'm not going to do that. And, and and when he wanted to find out who the who the uh, informants were in the gambling cases, I told him, no, I'm not going to do that uh, because I know they're going to kill these people. And in fact, after the after he asked me the first time in the gambling on the very first gambling cases, one of the uh, well, I won't mention his name, but one of the one of the major uh, gambling detectives who was a very, very close friend. Uh, I got, I saw him. And when I saw him, I said, you know, look, I said, you don't want to give any of these names to any of these people, meaning the other lawyers. I didn't know if they had dealings with the other lawyers or not. I didn't care, but I said, you don't do that because you're going to, these people will get killed. I mean, they were really anxious to find out who the informants were because there were so many, these guys were doing such a great job. I set my own standards, Neil, and, and I decided what I would do and what I wouldn't do. There were certain things I would not do. Uh, that's what almost got me killed when I warned Frank Vanella, uh, you know, on his thing. And I didn't care. I knew there'd be a problem, but I figured I'll worry about that when it happens. So no, I, I set my own, my own rules, even in terms of cases I would take and cases I wouldn't. I turned down a lot of cases, big cases, worth big money. I just didn't like the people. 
Let's wind back to when Pat Marcy first approaches you. When he first approached me, my thought was, you know, you know, I'll, I'll see what the case. He says, can you handle it? And uh, those were his own words. Will you handle it? You know, I thought he meant just, you know, take care of it. And my original thought was, you know, if it looks like a weak case, I'll take it to a jury. That was my original thought. And again, this is me. this is the Harry Alleman case. The Harry Alleman case. You know, the, the conversation took place maybe 10 minutes. And I said to Pat, uh, you know, well, get me the file on the case and I'll see and I'll see what it looks like. I'll see what kind of a case they have. The very next morning when I come in, when I come walking through counselors, Pat was there at the first ward table. I sit down and he said, here, I've got the file. And I said, all right. I said, let me go upstairs. And when I when I read the file, it was an absolute case. I knew I could have won. No question before a jury. What you had in the case was you had some guy, Louis Almeida, who was on his way to Pennsylvania to kill somebody. He gets stopped by the state police. They find, I guess, weapons in the trunk and whatever. He's an ex-con. And, and, he, and he admits he's on his way to Pennsylvania to kill somebody. Uh, he indicates that, you know, to get himself, to get himself a pass, he's going to tell him who killed Billy Logan. He was a guy that was killed, you know, he was killed about three or four years before. And he tells them that he was the driver of the car and, and he drove, he, he said he drove uh, Harry, Harry, uh, he identified, he said Harry Alleman was the, was with him and Harry Alleman was in the back seat of the car. And he drove up to Billy Logan's house. And when they knew he went to work, he, he said he had, for a couple of weeks, he had, he had watched them. And he said they were waiting for him out in front of his house because they knew he came out around 11 o'clock or so to go work on the docks. And when he came out, he said, Harry said, hey, Billy, and shot him through the back window. He had a sawed-off shotgun, and he shot him through the back window. And then he said, said Harry told him to drive slowly, to drive slowly away. Supposedly to corroborate him, they had a witness named Bobby Lowe. The, on the night of the shooting, police report read, walking from down the street towards them, and it was Bobby Lowe, and he said, I saw what happened. He said, I was letting my dog run out. I opened the door. I lived down the street, and I opened the door to let the dog run out to do his business. And he said, I saw a car come screeching around the corner. And it pulled up over there and somebody put a long barreled shotgun out the window and shot, you know, shot somebody that I knew and, and shot Billy. And then he got out of the car. He shot him in the head with a 45, which is totally contradictory to what, you know, what Louis Almeida told him. Three years later, they have a statement from Bobby Lowe. He was walking, and this is three years after, you know, the first, after the shooting, that he was walking, uh, he was walking his dog. He heard some gunshot. His dog ran towards the, where the shots were, and he ran to get his dog. And he was about 15 feet when, uh, when somebody got out of the car and shot him. And he said, I looked at him, I was 15 feet away, and I looked at him eye to eye. And I jumped into the bushes and off he went. I mean, totally contradictory to what he had said in the first place. And he's saying that he got out and shot him with a 45 when Harry, when Billy was never shot with a 45. And Harry never left the car. If it was Harry, 
he never left the car because there were people from the house that heard the shots and they look out and they saw the car driving down the street. Nobody indicated the guy was out in the street. That was their cooperation witness. When he gets me the paperwork, I tell Pat, I'm sure I can win this case. And he said, that's when he said, no, we don't want a possibility. You see if you can find somebody that, you know, that will take it. And one of the first thoughts I do have in terms of that is Frank Wilson. Frank Wilson is a judge who has a reputation as being a, a state-minded judge and so forth. But I've been running around with Frank for a while. Uh, I've been over at his golf course playing golf with him. He belonged to a country club. He was a big, big drinker. Uh, he would be drunk by about 3, 4 o'clock most every day. At lunchtime, he would start. And he always had liquor up there. He always had liquor up there in the, in the chambers. He would go every day to the little restaurant where everybody, where everybody met right down the street, where they had a bar in the back of it. And that's where he would be. And the way I got real friendly with him was he took a liking to me. Why more so than other people? I don't know. He always had his bailiff with him and he never drove home at night. The bailiff always drove him home, uh, drove him back, you know, drove him back to his house, uh, because he was drunk most every night. And, on a couple of occasions, uh, I would be there with him. And at one point he started, he, you know, others would offer to drive him home, but he asked to have me drive him home. You know, can you drive him home? And I'd also, on a couple of occasions, flown him to Las Vegas with me. I'd been very, very good friends of his. Anyhow, I approached him over at my restaurant. By then I had, I had formed that restaurant with Artie Greco. I was just approached by somebody on a case. And I don't get much farther than that. When he says to me, are you talking about the Harry Alleman case? And I said, yes. And he said, I was already SOJ'd. In other words, the, the lawyer in the case was Tom Maloney. And Tom Maloney didn't want to go on a, with any kind of a trial in, in Frank Wilson's courtroom. So he had filed for a substitution. Was Maloney the current or previous defense attorney for Harry Alleman? Yes. And Maloney, and, to, and Maloney felt that Wilson was too tough of a judge. Well, it just, he just didn't want him. He just, you know, he, obviously Maloney, a lot of people despise Maloney, including myself, because he was just an arrogant, an arrogant, nasty. He had been a boxer too. I'm pretty sure up at Notre Dame, big, you know, would be tough guy. And a lot of people, a lot of people, even as a lawyer, they knew he was connected. You know, he was connected to a lot of mobsters, a lot of the organized crime people and a lot of people. And, and then again, he just didn't want he. He did not want to go there. He probably wanted to get it to some other judge, maybe that he could, you know, that he could possibly fix or whatever. I don't know. He had filed in that substitution. And the judge said to me, so I was SOJ. I was substituted out. You can't get the case back to me. But I realized how powerful these people were. I had realized already uh, within a short period of time by watching all the people that came and by being introduced to all the people I'm in, I'm being, I'm being introduced to the people that are running just about every department in the city. I realized that Fred Brody's uh, brother is running the sheriff's department. What happened too was when I was told to handle the case and I, Pat Marcy said to me, if you need any help, and he brought in the state's attorney who was in charge of organized crime, the, the special prosecutor in charge of the organized crime detail, uh, Mike Ficaro, who was related to Pat. Mike was brought over there 
we met in their private room below, you know, below the first ward office. And Pat told him, anything Bob wants, you give him. Any help he wants, you give him. And, uh, okay, fine. Uh, so I, I realize these people have unbelievable contacts. Wait, let, let's, let's put a fine point on that. So the lead prosecutor for the state of Illinois? He, they had, in, in the city of Chicago, and, and actually those, those are courts that come from all over Cook County. 26th in California is where all the major trials go. The jail is right behind it. And this is where all your, all your felony cases, your serious felony cases go, narcotics cases and all the, all the murders and everything else. They go to 26th in California. They had a special unit, the organized crime unit, where all they handled were cases with organized crime like this a mob murder. At this time, there were probably a thousand, over a thousand that they don't know of mob murders in, in Chicago and in Cook County. There had never been a single conviction for anyone on a mob murder. And that's why I'm sure it was so important to Marcy and the rest that nobody gets convicted because this is their power. All the people come to them for protection. This is their power. We were talking about that special well, unit was run right. by an individual Mike Picaro. Mike Picaro was the head of the organized crime section. <laughs> and he's, I think Mike Picaro, I'm pretty sure Mike Picaro's father was killed by the mob. And um, I mean, I, this is, these are rumors I heard. Uh, his father, I'm pretty sure, was killed and Pat all but adopted him. Pat probably had his father killed, <laughs> um, but uh, all but adopted him. But he had got, he had put him in there as head of the organized crime prosecuting prosecutor's office. I mean, that's the kind of power I told you these people have. That defines full circle. I mean, you know, with everything, but, you know, not just with the with the criminal stuff, with the civil stuff, too. I approached Frank and and he says, I can't, uh, you know, you can't get the case to me because I was SOJ. And I said, I'm pretty sure we can. To Just to anchor it again, this is Judge Frank J. Wilson, who's been SOJ. Yes, right. And so I said, I said, well, here, and I gave him a thousand dollars. I said, if I can't get the case to you, you keep it. Uh, and I handed him $1,000. And I see Pat the next morning. And I said, I've got somebody. Because I've seen it's an unbelievably weak case. This is a this is an absolute pitch-out case. Now, can you, uh, can you do one thing for a moment and talk about Harry Alleman? Because we touched a little bit on him. But can you just pause and talk about who he is? We know he's a hitman. Just expand a touch on him for a moment. So, and then we'll go further down this case. He was he was one of the, the and let's say one of the most notorious. In fact, it was his reputation, not just among mobsters, but among the city, was that of a killer. Uh, and with no exaggeration, I knew probably forty to fifty people doing doing these hits. These were a bunch of were people I ran around with. They would and I would listen to them talking about certain things. Uh, you know, they would all talk freely around me if I was even, you know, 10, 15 feet away. That's how I found out who killed uh, Alan Dorfman. They would they would talk about these different things and they would never it would never just be like one guy going and suddenly doing it. They would watch the people for a period of time and they would go out with crews of two or three. And this is why, too, they made a lot of their guys sheriffs. The reason they made them sheriffs is so they could carry a gun. They're driving away from the scene themselves and, and the ones that did the killing. Uh, they have, you know, and they get stopped. Oh, look, I'm a sheriff or I'm a policeman. This is why they made a lot of them deputy sheriffs. It's a lot of times part time 
where they were supposed to on the weekends just go sit around the you know the courthouses you know when they have court on on the days when the main courts are closed. This is why they they wanted all those things. And Harry Alleman, in fact, what I had found out. You know, I I knew him to see him, but I'd never talked to him before. You know, I'd seen him many times in these different nightclubs, but uh, you know, I had no reason to talk to him, and uh, you know, and didn't want to. Had no reason to. I was usually with the Elmwood Park people, and the others came by. Even if they're talking to them, you know, I just minded my own business. I'm my own person there. After the case. You know, and now I'm out with him socially and I'm running around with him and Butchie. I find out from the other people, Harry and Butchie traveled all around the country killing people. They were hired by New York mobsters to whack people that they couldn't get at. I knew that they had been sent out to Arizona on a couple of occasions, but they traveled around the country. You know, the most notorious uh, hitmen as a team, Harry and Harry and Butchie, Butchie Petroselli. But uh, that's that's who Harry was, as they say. And. And we're we're talking about in, a, in an area where uh, people were being killed all the time. Uh, and the reason was they knew they could get away with it. They get a hold of Pat Marcy and, uh, and, and it's taken care of. That's why uh, Harry Alleman, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was through Joe Nagal, uh, Harry Alleman was part of the crew out there in Cicero. And Joe Nagal was, uh, was a notorious, uh, real nasty mobster from, from Cicero. I represent a lot of his people, and I used to see him all the time at the racetrack with Ole. I'd be with them at the table with Ole, uh, but uh, he was very close to Pat Marcy. Who was, o- sure who was Ole? The biggest bookmaker, Walter Olson. He was the biggest bookmaker in town. He's the one I could bet 10000 a game with. He used to be at the racetrack all the time with Joey. Joe Nagal is also known as Joseph Fiorola. Right. Mr. Clean and Oscar. Well, they called him that because he was a bald. He, he looked like Mr. Clean. You know, the advertisement for Mr. Clean? Sure. He was one of the nastiest of all. Just a vicious, vicious guy. Harry was related in some way to Joe Nagar. But like I say, Joe was, was very close to uh, Pat Marcy. If you trust Wikipedia, Harry Alleman was his nephew. Harry Alleman, his father owned a restaurant, Mama Sue's, over on Taylor Street. It's, it's right there in the corner. And in fact, from the day after the case, after the, in fact, the same day the judge came back with a not guilty, I wind up meeting Harry. I wind up meeting Harry over there. And we're over there. He had a, there was a little table that sat four people right alongside the window. And if you look around, if you look out the window, there's a stoplight right there. And in, in the traffic is going back and forth. It's really funny because about the second time I'm there, you know, sitting with Harry and with Butchie. And, uh, you know, I think his dad was there too. Harry's dad was there. His dad, I think, was Italian or his dad was Mexican. His, his mother, his was, again, if you believe Wikipedia, which we tend to believe in, in some of these cases, his mother was Italian. You're right. His, his father, father was Mexican. He is a native of Durango, Mexico. And right, his father was, was involved in narcotics trafficking. And if you believe what it, Harry says, he used to beat the crap out of him every day unless he was in jail. Then he would get a respite from his beatings. Yeah, right. I saw some of that stuff on TV with his daughter. What a wonderful family guy. Harry Alleman had a girlfriend who lived over there in Taylor Street, and that's where he was. That's where he. That's where he was every night. He's screwing her every night. He would be home every day for dinner, and he'd insist they all be there at a certain time. He would insist they all be there for dinner, at at the house. But again, every night he had his girlfriend over on 
over on Taylor Street. And we talked before about Dominic Sinise. He was the head of the Teamsters Union. That's somebody that I'm with, you know, two, three times a week at Counselor's Row. He had a son, and I'm not sure what his name was. When Harry went to prison, his son made the mistake of fooling around with Harry's girlfriend, even though he's in prison doing like 15 years. He had a session one night, and when he comes out and gets into a car, the car blows up. He didn't get killed, but he wound up maimed something terrible. That's the family man, Harry Alleman, and that's who Harry Alleman was. He liked torturing people. They talked about they talked about the case where he put a guy, he put the one guy's head, one of those burglars' heads, he put his head in a uh, in a vice and squeezed it until the eyes popped out. When he was torturing him, and I believe that Harry was just a vicious human being. That scene was uh, memorialized, if you will, in Marty Scorsese's movie Casino. Uh, yeah, he's just a just a disgusting human being. When you're introduced to this case by Pat Marcy, requested to take it on, Harry Alleman has already been charged, and he's mounting his defense, but hasn't gone to trial yet. Yes. Well, here, here's what's really all too interesting about that whole thing now, too. What happened now was, uh, after I agree to do it, I then go see Frank Wilson, and I show him the file that I have, and it shows it's no case whatsoever. And because he said I want to see the case before before I agree, I'll take it. And I never said, "Will you fix it?" I just this is all assume. I'm assuming he knows what I'm talking about. I said, you know, he said, "Let me see what the case looks like." So I sat down with him. Over at the, at the at the restaurant, I, I took him downstairs. We had a downstairs office down there where a lot of the mob guys did a lot of their business too. Uh, but I took him downstairs and showed him that they had an absolute absolute zero of a case. They had no motive. They've got two witnesses that totally contradict each other. No other evidence whatsoever. No no fingerprints. No gun. No nothing. It's a throw out case. Again, he agrees to take it, and I gave him some more money at that time. And I asked him what he thought was fair, and, and he told me the figure $10,000 was agreed on. That's what he was going to get. So now, it's a day or two later when I get a call, and, and I used to go all the time to a motel over on Harlem. There was a motel on Harlem where they had a, a, a nightclub, you know, in the blow area. And that's where I was once or twice a week, because Marco and those people owned it. It was, you know, loaded with mob characters and whatever, you know, with the uh, hotel on top. I get a call from Marco. Are you going to be there tonight? Yeah, I'll, I'll be there. There's somebody I want you to meet. When I get there, I meet him, and he takes me upstairs, and we go into a motel room, and he said, uh, Harry Alleman's going to be coming over. He wants to meet with you. I had never told Marco. I had never told, you know, see, that was why these guys love me. I had never told anybody. I mean, not anybody, what I was doing or, or that I'm involved in something like that. Meaning Never, your, your conversation with Pat Marcy was hermetically sealed between you and him. I mean, that, that, no, that, that just was me. That's yeah. my that's my nature. And that's why these guys love me. Because, no, I, I never told Marco. Or, and I'm with Marco two, three times a week. I'm over at their club all the time. I never told them, you know, I'm, I'm going to be involved in this case and I'm going to take care of it. I just never did. You mentioned something a moment ago that you said the total was agreed to as 10,000. Is that $10,000 that was going to Frank right. Wilson? 
Yeah. You gave him the thousand. It was just a, here's the money. Upon his review at your restaurant, he tells you he needs $10,000. Well, it was, I'm not sure if he he said that's what he wants or if he said, I, I think I said to him, you know, is 10,000 fair or something like that. He said to me, how much, how much am I going to get is what he said. And I indicated I'm trying to be exact on it. And I indicated, you know, well, we'll, we'll see what's fair. And I said, uh, you know, how about 10,000? And he said, okay, that's fine. And I gave him another, I think I gave him another, I think 1,500 or another 25. I, I forget the exact, I gave him, then I gave him some more money once he had agreed to take the case. There's no explicit reasoning in these conversations because it's, known why and why talk about it it's just this is to take the case here's the money i just i i anytime i talk to anybody i'm ultra careful i'm ultra careful about you know as i told you like when when this guy came to see me but let's give you're you're missing a very important part of 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 the whole thing now by by disrupting in this area i'm not being i'm just trying to be trying to be uh careful here when when, when, and this is what, this is why we were able to get the case retried. Harry Alleman comes in, comes into the room. Hi, how are you? Yeah, again, I hear you're a terrific lawyer and this and that. Now, are you sure this case uh, is, are you sure it's going to be okay? Are you sure this judge is going to throw the case out or words that effect? And I said, you know, I wouldn't say so. Unless I, I knew so, I, you know, you're absolutely certain. And he said, and I said, look, I said, you know, if I say I'll take it, if I'm going to do it, I'll do it. And he said to me, because you know, if there's a problem, you're going to have a problem. And, and I'm, I'm just sitting there. And then he says, Tom Maloney wants to handle the case. And I said, he wants to handle the case. I said, no, he can't have the case because Frank Wilson doesn't not. I made this up. This is not true. I didn't like, I didn't like him for a lot of reasons. Uh, I knew the guy was a slime ball in every direction. Uh, I had heard, I had heard already a lot of other things about, about him. Uh, and I just didn't like him. Just a disgusting human being in every sense of the word. And uh, I knew he hung out in this in this dope den over there on uh, West 26th Street uh, with all these dope dealers and whatever. His, his girlfriend was a was a dope dealer. He said, "Look, Harry says to me, he's going to be named. A, the Supreme Court's going to name him a judge, uh, and, and he'd be good to have as a friend to you." And I said, "Harry, I said, if you want to use him, that's fine." I said, but then I'm out of it. Frank is not going to uh, is not going to handle the case. He said, now you you sure he you sure he's going to be? He was all nervous. He said because apparently Maloney had told him all kinds of you know you don't want this guy, you don't want him. Any other conversation was only about maybe another five minutes. And I said, Harry, simply, if you want me to handle it, I'll handle it. I said, you know, I said, and but Frank Wilson told me he didn't want me to handle it. He did not want me to go in there. And, and he's right. He says, everybody knows that we're such good friends. So I'm planning on getting somebody else. I'll probably have Mike Cohen, who's an ex-federal uh, lawyer and is a very, very sharp lawyer. I'm going to probably have him handle the case, you know, go before the judge and whatever. He leaves. I go to see Pat and 
and I tell Pat, Pat, I just got, I just met with Harry Alleman, and uh, he wants to use Tom Maloney, and uh, you know, and I told you, and I'm telling him that you know the judge won't do it if Maloney's there. He just hates Maloney. And Pat tried to talk me, try to talk him into it, and I said no, Pat, he's not going to do it. Then you know, get somebody else to handle the case. And then he says, okay. And I said, and I said, Pat, I said, you know, I've got somebody. I've got somebody that uh, that I'll bring in. It'll probably look better if some lawyer from out of town comes in. They won't think the fix is in or something like that. And that was his reason for wanting to use the other lawyer. The next day, I go see Marco. I'm at faces with Marco. And who's there but Harry Alleman? Now, he had never been to faces before. And he's there and he's pitching again. And he again says, the Supreme Court's going to appoint him a judge. And he wants this to be his last case before he goes, which, which again, shows you the power of these people, that they have complete control over the Supreme Court. Here's a lawyer everybody knows is crooked. Uh, every, his reputation is that, of a, is that of a slime ball. And it's a period of time before the elections, the Supreme Court will just name him. And they already knew that he was going to be named. And I found out later, too, why. Harry killed a couple people for him, for Maloney. I found this out from Butchie. As I dig deeper into Maloney, he was the only judge in the history of Illinois to be convicted of fixing murder trials. Um, you might see he was called before a grand jury, too, a, a, a short time before that, as a, as a suspect in a double murder. Uh, this is what Butchie told me, because I said to Butchie, you know, I couldn't understand. I said, I said to Butchie, because uh, I'm running around with him all the time now. I, I, for the life of me, can't understand why Maloney wanted to be representing Harry on this case. That obviously is going to be, you know, they're going to claim it's fixed when it's a bench trial. And when he's going to be named a judge by the Supreme Court, why would he want that? And But she said, because he said, uh, Harry killed a couple of guys for him. That's why. That's the end of 7A. 7B is next, which goes further into the Alleman trial. Thanks again for listening.